You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. This morning, we're not just starting a new year. I believe so strongly that God has placed us at this moment in history for a purpose. I know it's a challenge and there are things that we're facing like we've never faced before, but God has put you this morning here and I believe God has placed you at this moment in history for a reason. And over the next five weeks, we're gonna be talking about that. We're gonna be walking through this remarkable story in the story of Esther. And uh, if you wanna jump a little deeper, uh, sometimes we'll have like a Bible reading plan. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna encourage you to go through whatever Bible app or the uh, actual physical Bible over the next month, throughout the month of January. I want you to read through the story of Esther. It's in the Old Testament. It's not a real long book. Read a few verses. Read a chapter. Read through the story of Esther and process. What does this mean for me? And if you want to kind of get a background, if you go to our website, calvaryirwin.com slash time of your life, or or you can just go to calvaryirwin.com, right in the homepage is a button, and uh, we have a page there for our series. There's a link to see kind of an overview of the whole book of Esther. We want to go deeper and what it means to follow Jesus and, and learn what we can about the time God has placed us uh, in the, from the book of Esther. As we kind of kick off this morning, I want to welcome you guys here, those watching online, but also our friends at the uh, Catholic Charities Warming Shelter in the Cultural District, which are joining us this morning as well. And we're just so blessed to have you guys joining us uh, and uh, as we walk through God's word this morning. And uh, throughout this series, um, we're walking through the story of Esther. And, and if you want to go a little deeper, uh, got a lot of really good inspiration, a book by Max Lucado called Made for This Moment, and uh, you can uh, pick it up at Amazon or wherever you buy books, really good book about the story of Esther. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had the wonderful experience of going through a corn maze? I know we don't go through corn mazes in January, but, but maybe a few months ago. Uh, this past fall, Royal Rangers, which is a program we have for boys, my son Zach is in it, they had a, a pumpkin patch uh, event and hayride and everything. So we took our whole family, we went to that, and after we did, picked our pumpkins and went through the hayride and all of that, uh, there was two corn mazes at this place. Uh, one was like the really easy little kids corn maze where you can like see the beginning and end and you're like, okay, this is fun. They're just going to walk through the corn maze. You can see everything. It'll take like five minutes. The other one was like the really hard one, the really difficult one. And we have four kids. So we thought, you know, do the hard one, right? That makes sense. That's the, the good thing to do. So we go into the hard corn maze, this difficult one. And um, I had our two littlest ones, Luke and Addie, and Heidi had Evie, and then Zach kind of ran up ahead with one of his friends, and, uh, and we started going through this maze, and we were about five minutes in, and the little ones that I was with, they were done. They had enough. It was too cold. It was, it was just done, and so we kind of pushed our way through the corn stalks to the outside world and started the long walk back in the cold to the, to the car so we could warm up. Um, and, and Heidi told me kind of what was happening. What was happening after we left is Zach and his friend would like run up ahead, and they'd figure out the dead ends and the right way and everything. By the time Heidi and Evie got to them, they'd figured it out, and they would just kind of walk through. And we were in the car for like 40 minutes. This was like the longest corn maze ever. Um, I, I remember uh, asking like, what in the world happened to you guys? Did you guys like fall in a pit? What, what was going on here? Uh, and Heidi was telling me that there, there were a number of times where they didn't quite know where they were going, if they were going to make it out or not. They didn't know how it was. 
It was one of those really difficult corn mazes. Eventually they saw the exit, made a run for it, and, and they made it out. They're still here, you know. They're still alive. They're here at church today. We, we made it, which was good. Uh, and and I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, when we look at corn mazes or walking through a maze, um, as we start a new year, with all the anticipation that comes with turning the page of a new year, you know, many of us are hopeful of what the future holds, but I would venture to guess most of us are still feeling a little like we've landed ourselves in this impossible maze, and we're not sure uh, if we're ever going to find our way out. Uh, just when you think you found the exit, boom, there's another wall of corn stalks directing you elsewhere, another COVID spike, another round of layoffs at work, Grocery prices are skyrocketing. Your bank account is dropping quickly. Maybe you're wondering if this pandemic, if your job situation, your health issues, all that you're facing, is this ever going to end? And maybe even beyond that, are you even going to survive it all? Like, is your career going to survive it? Is your family going to survive it? Is, is, is your, is your uh, marriage going to survive this? And it's like this never-ending maze of life that somehow we found ourselves in almost two years ago. And the times we live in have become often overwhelming, never-ending, and seemingly impossible to overcome. And as we step into a new year, I want to step out of this current time we're in and step into a different time altogether. As I mentioned, over the next five weeks, we're going to follow the life of a woman by the name of uh, Hadessa, who's better known by her Persian name, which is Esther. Her, her, her story is recorded in the Old Testament book that bears her name. And, and the ups and downs of her life and story are not uh, only remarkably parallel to so much we're experiencing today, but I believe provide some incredible hope in the midst of hopeless times that we can sometimes find ourselves trapped in. Uh, the setting is the city of Susa, 5th century Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran. During the reign of King Darius I, or he's better known as Darius the Great, the Persian Empire would control more than 2.9 million square miles, or 44% of the world's population at that time, an estimated 50 million people. To get an idea how big this empire was, you could take a map of the United States and put it down, and then duplicate it and see it next to the original map, and that's how far the empire stretched. It was massive. And the characters we'll be following over the next five weeks are four people that couldn't be more diverse. First, you have King Xerxes. He, he was the king that followed King Darius. He was a man who loved his wine, had very little regard for the women in his life, and whose convictions would shift faster than the weather in Pittsburgh. He ruled Persia from 486 to 465 B.C. The villain of the story is a man by the name of Haman. Uh, we'll talk more about him next week, but Haman was a wealthy, influential member of Xerxes' cabinet. He walked with a swagger that was unmistakable. He lived with a heart usually attributed to people like Hitler. And most importantly, he had the king's attention on any matters of the kingdom or the empire. Similar to Hitler, Haman demanded to be worshipped, and he despised the Jews. In fact, he would try to eradicate the entire empire of Jews. And we'll get more to that uh, uh, later, later on. A third character was one of the Jews Haman hated, a man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai is an interesting character. He was very comfortable being quiet early on, but would let his voice be heard much later. Uh, for, for much of his time in Persia, he would keep his nationality, the fact that he was Jewish, a thing of secrets, but that could only last for so long. And then there was Mordecai's cousin, Esther, who, who Mordecai had raised, 
himself because she was an orphan. She had to have been a head turner. And in fact, ancient Jewish rabbinical writings would actually list Esther as one of the four most beautiful women in the entire world. Her beauty would gain her an access to the king, but it would be her courage, her conviction that would ultimately change the world. Now, the book of Esther is a really interesting book for a number of reasons, but most notably, it's one of only two books in the entire Bible that never mentions the name of God. Song of Solomon is the other one. Never mentions the name of God. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, some people do the reading through the Bible in a year, you'll notice the first 16 books of the Bible, God's name is everywhere. God is speaking uh, uh, all of creation into, into existence. He's miraculously providing a son to Abraham and Sarah. He's parting the Red Sea. He's helping Joshua uh, go into the promised land. He's establishing Israel as a nation. And then you get to Esther. And it's almost like God disappears. Like God isn't present. Read beginning to end of the book of Esther, God isn't mentioned at all, not even once. This book never contains phrases like God said, then God did, or God spoke. You might wonder, why is there no mention of God, no declarations of God, no visible hand of God at work? It's because if you're stuck in the middle of that corn maze of life, you probably can relate. Like God seems distant, absent, almost removed from your current reality. Everyone else is hearing from God, seeing God at work, but not you. This is the the world that we step into in Persia in the 5th century. I I remember this day so clearly. Uh, Heidi and I had been married for almost three months. We were on vacation in a place that I grew up going to a lot as a kid, which is Daytona Beach. One of the really cool aspects of the beaches at Daytona uh, is it's one of the few few beaches in the world that you can still drive onto with a car. Uh, The beautiful sand of Daytona was calling, so I drove our rental car. It was a white Ford Fusion out onto the beach. I was so proud of this. I, I probably mentioned this to Heidi at least 10, maybe more times. Heidi, did you know you can actually drive on these beaches? It's like one of the only beaches in the world you can drive on to. She got sick of it, I'm sure. Um, but she, was, she, she you know, you know, endured. And, and sure enough, we get there, we drive right onto the beach. No one stopped us. They didn't yell at us. It was fabulous. Then it happened. In my overconfidence, I wasn't paying attention to which part of the beach I was parking that front-wheel drive vehicle, Ford Focus, or Ford, Ford uh, Fusion in. And, and when you know, I went right into the soft stuff, like the stuff you like to walk in but hate to drive in. I discovered you actually can't drive in it. Um, within minutes, in my efforts to impress my new bride and show off, I made a major gaffe. Our rental car was good and stuck in the sand. Uh, fortunately, some guys down the beach would bring their big F-150 truck over and pull us out, but it was a harebrained moment for me. And, and maybe you've been there before. Our pride gets uh, the best of us. Our ambition drives us beyond firm ground, and we find ourselves ultimately in trouble. In our efforts to impress or to achieve or to advance ourselves, we sacrifice or set aside our better judgment. We lose our bearings. We forget what we're supposed to be, sometimes even who we're supposed to be. Uh, And and this is the temptation that faced Jews in 5th century Persia. Listen to this in Esther chapter 1, in verse 3. Here's what it says. In the third year of his reign, Xerxes gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the province were present. Now, now, Xerxes' goal here uh, of this banquet was to gather all the nobles and leaders of the empire together to convince them to ultimately support his campaign against the Greeks. 
He wanted to go attack the Greeks, okay? And he was hoping to gather them all together, like butter them all up, get them all drunk, and then convince them to say, yeah, let's do this. Xerxes was, was young and rich beyond comprehension. In today's dollars, he was estimated to have, uh, be worth over $50 billion. And to show off his wealth and garner the support of these leaders, he throws this six-month-long party that ultimately would make Mardi Gras look like child's play. Here's what it says in verse 4. It says, For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So he closed out the six months with this seven-day seven bash. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people, from least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. So near the end of that, he throws this giant seven-day feast. And in a drunken stupor, King Xerxes decides he wants to show off his wife to all his buddies and have her dance before them. Uh, according to the Midrash, which is uh, the Jewish commentary on the book of Esther, an ancient Jewish commentary, he tells her to come in wearing nothing more than a crown. Now remember, this is the most powerful wealthy man in the entire world at this time in history. He was ready to flaunt his wife for all of his drunk friends. Now, you have, you have to understand the, 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 the culture of Persia at this time. This was not a safe place. This was not a good place for women. Xerxes' wife, Vashti, would have been spent most of her time kept in some small corner of the palace where she would be pampered and made ready for the king to summon her at any moment to do anything he asked of her. She was nothing more than another one of King Xerxes' possessions to show off to others. She was the epitome of a trophy wife in all the worst way. And then the unthinkable happens. He summons her and she refuses. She refuses to do what the most powerful man in the world commanded her to do. Listen to this in verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Think about this. A billionaire king who oversees 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, a man that could literally call for anything in his empire and have it, is stood up by his own wife. The irony runs deep here. So, so what does he do? He does what drunk men have been doing from the beginning of human history. He makes a bad situation way worse. Rather than dealing with it privately, he makes a spectacle of it. His advisors tell him he needs to send a message to the women across the empire that they should always do what the men in their homes tell them to do, no matter what. So here's what he says. It's recorded in verse 19 of Esther 1. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm. All the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Now back to Mordecai. At this time, we find him uh, in, in history, in this moment, the Jews were more than three generations and thousands of miles removed from the settings they were used to seeing them in the rolling hills of Israel and the confines of Jerusalem. Israel had been ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 BC, over 100 years earlier. The remnants of anything normal for a Jew were almost entirely gone. 
Jews had become accustomed to a world surrounded by Persians and everything Persian culture embodied. In fact, the truly zealous Jews had already returned to Jerusalem by this time with Zerubbabel and Ezra as they went back to rebuild Jerusalem. The Jews that still remained in Persia wanted to be there. Living in Persia had been good to them and in some surface ways, good for them. Unlike many of the other Old Testament books that speak of the the promised land that God was calling his people to, Esther, the book of Esther depicts Jews living in a world void of God's promises, but living in the land of Persia that felt so relevant, so appealing, so incredibly inviting. And this is the world that Jews like Mordecai and Esther found themselves living in. The culture told them to shed their Jewish roots, just to blend in, assimilate into the Persian culture, become one of us. And this is exactly what Mordecai had done. And he raised Esther to do. They both had hidden their roots, disguised who they really were, Jews living in a secular Persian world. Now fast forward four years. So from Esther chapter one to Esther chapter two is a four-year span. And during those four years, from when Vashti had been banished by King Xerxes, uh, Xerxes had made this ambitious yet foiled effort to attack the Greeks. He failed. And in the opening verses of Esther 2, he's now returning from this failed campaign, and he realizes, again, that he still has no queen. Here's what it says in Esther 2.1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So as he returns to this massive palace, there's no one there welcoming him back with open arms. He issues an order to gather the most beautiful virgins from across the vast Persian empire. Uh, Estimates are that there were somewhere between 400 and 1,400 candidates brought in. Now, when when I've heard this story in Sunday school, growing up or in church, it always fails to accurately convey how incredibly atrocious this entire process would be. These quote-unquote candidates would not be asked to love King Xerxes as a normal wife and husband might, but simply to entertain him, to please him, to indulge his every wish and whim. Embarking into this quote-unquote beauty pageant of sorts was not for the faint of heart, because to lose this contest wouldn't simply result in a trip trip home with your head down, but the women who were not chosen would spend the rest of their lives as one of Xerxes' concubines. They would never return again to their families. Any children they would have would be raised in the palace to serve the king. They would never be allowed to be heirs to the throne. None of the women would be allowed to ever sleep with another man, to ever risk the king summoning them and being told that anyone else was a better lover than Xerxes. This was pride, misogyny, and arrogance all at its worst. And into this ugly, incredibly toxic Persian world, stepped a Jew named Mordecai and his cousin Hadessa, who later became known as Esther. Here's what it says in verse five. Now there was a, in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried off into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive when, with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, to most of us, these two verses are really just full of a bunch of names that we can't pronounce, right? And maybe you read the Bible and you read some of these verses like, I can't pronounce those names, I just skip over that verse, move on to words I can comprehend, okay? Um, not everyone, uh, Scott's not here today, but not everyone's blessed with a dairy education like myself, you know, we can, you know, wax eloquent with all the big words, just joking. But um, 
Uh, this, this, there's more here, though, than just some difficult names. To a Jew reading those verses, these verses would raise some pretty significant questions, like this. Why in the world would Mordecai ever be in the citadel of Susa? This was the center of Persian power and opulence. That, there, that was no place for a Jew. Most Jews who lived in Persia lived secluded from society. They kept to themselves. They didn't integrate with Persian culture. But that wasn't the case for, for, for Mordecai. And on top of that, he didn't just live in the citadel of Susa. He actually had responsibilities there. Like, he worked there. He got a paycheck from them. He helped the political machine known as the Persian Empire actually function. He actually worked for this vile, evil, pagan king Xerxes. And, and, and this is what's nuts. Even more than that, his name, Mordecai, wasn't his Hebrew name. He was a pagan, his name was a pagan adaptation of, of the Persian male deity, Marduk. His name memorialized a foreign god. That, that would be like a modern-day Jew taking the name Muhammad. How could this have happened to Mordecai? We get a bit of an answer from the verses uh, that, that are hard to pronounce there in verse 5 and 6. Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Mordecai was three generations removed from Jerusalem at this point. He didn't have any context or memories of a way of life in Jerusalem. Over the course of three generations, the strong Jewish traditions and practices had all faded. He had all but hidden his Jewish roots and encouraged his cousin, Hadessa or Esther, to do the same as he encouraged her to not, to not only enter this horrible contest to be the next queen, but hopefully win the contest. Here's what it says in verse 8 of Esther 2. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now think about this. Mordecai had hid his heritage, taught his young cousin that he had raised like his own daughter to do the same. He's now entered her into a contest that would make the bachelor look innocent, knowing full well the goal of the entire thing is to get in bed with an evil Gentile king. And she complied. And what kind of story is this in the Bible? It literally harkens to, back to a question the psalmist writes in Psalm 137. Verse four, it says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land. In other words, how does, a person, how does a person live out their faith in a faithless world? It doesn't appear Mordecai or Esther were doing a very good job of this, as they seem to have chosen disguise and compromise rather than to stand and represent. They created a world of hidden identity. They had buried their true roots in faith under multiple layers of compromise. How could Mordecai not just seemingly abandon his faith in this moment, but then actually hand over this young girl he had raised as his own to seemingly, this seemingly disgusting process where the reward would be that she's the queen of a pagan empire. Things don't seem to add up here. It's such an odd group of people to be lifted up as heroes in scripture. 
Now, the reality is, we often find ourselves in places just like this. The, the tension to hide our true identity affects every single one of us. Maybe not in Persia or in a beauty pageant to be queen, but at work, in school, hanging out with our buddies, going out with our girlfriends. It's sometimes not convenient, not beneficial, not comfortable to be a follower of Jesus. It's not the cool thing to be. At some point, we all need to come to grips, though, with who we are and what our identity really means to us. You see, we live in a very similar culture to that of Persia in the 5th century. Our society permits all beliefs, but, but ex except for exclusive ones. You can, you can do whatever you want and believe whatever you want as long as you applaud what everyone else is doing. A, a few weeks ago, we sent uh, our oldest son, Zach, to a pastor's kids retreat uh, for the weekend. Uh, this was the first time that he had gone on a retreat like this uh, at all. And, and although he was going with Pastor Ron and some of our other pastor's kids, uh, it wasn't with us. And, and it was an emotional thing to say goodbye for two nights. And as he was leaving, we gave him the words of wisdom that many of us scramble to give our kids before they go to something like this for the first time. Don't forget that we love you. And, and don't forget whose you are. You're our son. You mean so very much to us, trying to let him know. And as we start a new year, we find ourselves in this place that many of us need to remember whose we are, where we came from, and what we actually stand for. Ultimately, you and I, we are sons of the Most High. We, we don't need to be intimidated, shaken, or disturbed by what happens in this world. We don't need to be shaped by what culture says we should be shaped by or need, to, be, uh, need to, to become because our identity isn't in culture's approval or culture's accolades or all the likes we can get. Our identity is in Christ. He is the one that has created us and the entire scope of human history chose to place us where he has at this time, this moment for a clear, transformative purpose. I know the last couple years have brought pain and sorrow and decisions like many of us have never faced before. But God chose to place you at this time in history. Not so you could be another societal clone that just goes with the flow of culture, but because God knew you would be that one that will stand like a pillar of consistency and hope in an ever-changing world. And we'll find out things, uh, how things pan out for Mordecai and Esther in the coming weeks, but today, I want to challenge you as the worship team comes. I want to challenge you to take note of something. Take note of the decisions that Mordecai and Esther made up to this point. And allow them to be a mirror in your own life. And here, here's some questions I want to ask you. How are you defining yourself? How are you defining yourself? Like, what are the elements that define who you are? And, and on top of that, have you buried your identity in Christ? Now, I'm not talking about between you and God. I'm talking about your life publicly. Like, do others know the godly heritage that you carry? Do, do others know the decisions you've made privately that affect your decisions publicly? Like there are certain things you do and don't do. Do people know why? The relationship with God that you have. I'm not suggesting you become some Bible thumper, stand on the table in your break room and start preaching at everybody. I'm talking about allowing your godly convictions, principles, and calling to guide every decision you make to reflect God to this world as opposed to be reflecting our culture back to itself, a culture that has become so intoxicated with itself. 
Maybe it's time for some of us to come toward the light, the light that's shining, push our way out of that corn maze and find our way home again. See, it's never too late and we're never too far gone to find our way home. God welcomes us back with open arms, even when we've disowned him, even, even when we've hidden or tried to bury our identity in Christ. He welcomes us back with open arms. And, and today, God isn't here asking you to simply do the part, put the mask on, play your church part, go home and do whatever you want. The story of Esther, this part in the story, is an important reflection on us. Are we living out what we say we believe? Because we live in a culture where everyone can believe whatever they want. You know, you can believe in Christ and live like Satan the rest of the week. We're able to do that, right? You, you can say, man, I follow Jesus and post all kinds of nasty, crazy, angry, hateful things on Facebook. We, we can do that. But that's not what scripture calls us to. That might be the, the life that culture will accept and say is okay and is permissible. But that's not what Jesus has called us to. That's not what the Bible has called us to. God has called us to a life where we stand for what we stand for. We recognize whose we are. We recognize who we are in Christ. And we allow our life, our decisions, how we carry ourselves, how we react and respond to be filtered through that life. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're watching online, watching us this morning. And you've never taken this step to say, Jesus, I'm imperfect. I don't have what it takes in and of myself. Will you please forgive me? Will you please transform my life? We've hidden our identity in so many things. Maybe you've hidden your identity in a relationship. Maybe you've hidden your identity in your status. Maybe you've hidden your identity in your mistakes and all the wrong you've done. Maybe you've hidden your identity in addiction. Maybe you've hidden your identity in all these things, the house you live in, the car you drive, the, 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 the family you're a part of, or the people you hang out with. We've, we've hidden our identity in so many things, and we've convinced ourselves, God can never love me because of all of this. God could never love me because of what I've done. Think of Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai raised this girl, entered her into this contest, such a, an atrocious contest, and encouraged her to hide who she was, to hide her roots. And, and, and he had to live with himself with that truth. How could God ever welcome a man like that back into his arms? He did. And he can do that for us. And today, before we wrap up, we're going to sing a song here in a minute. I want to give us an opportunity. It's just between you and God to make a decision privately that I believe will transform your life publicly. To make a decision privately that will change how you interact with people, how you interact at work, how you go about your interactions with uh, money and, 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 and jobs and careers and addiction and everything. A, a decision privately that that changes everything. Why? Because when you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Like everything starts fresh from that moment and you start to make decisions from the context of being inside the house, not outside the house. Your perspective shifts and changes. Doesn't mean that everything around you changes. It means your perspective changes because you're in Christ. And I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision, to say today, I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to be in Christ. Accept his forgiveness 
and more importantly, commit to live for his purposes, for my future, for my life now, today, and into the future. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we pray? Lord, I thank you for another day you've given us. I thank you for the sacrifice you made. Jesus, that you died so that we could be made whole. You died so that, that, that sinners like us, like me, could come home. God, that we're never too far gone. God, that we're never too far from you. That we could have never messed up so much that you wouldn't welcome us back. Today, Lord, we, we are taking this step to come home. To come home, to say, Jesus, we're coming home. Jesus, we're coming back to you. God, change us and transform us. God, change us from the inside. If that's you this morning as we're continuing to pray, you'd say, today, I need to surrender my life to Christ today. I need to be found in Christ today. I need his forgiveness. I need to change what I'm living for. I need to recognize who I am, that I'm a son or a daughter of the Most High. If that's you this morning, you're saying, I want to surrender my life to Christ, commit my life to Christ, wherever you are. If you're here in person, you're watching line, on the count of three, as an act of your will, I want to ask you to reach your hand toward heaven. Just you and God. God, today, this is the day. Today, January 2nd, 2022, I'm starting a new day. It's a new day. It's a new year. It's a new destiny. If that's you this morning, on the count of three, one, two, three, I want you to reach your hand toward heaven this morning. Wherever you are, if you're here in person watching a line, amen. Whether you raise your hand or not today, I'm gonna ask everyone to pray this prayer with me together. I'm just gonna lead you in a prayer. It's not a magic prayer. It's just a conversation with God that I wanna lead you in. My hope is this is the first of many conversations you have with him as you share what's on your heart with him. That's all prayer is, is talking to God. Would you pray this prayer with me together, everyone together? Dear God, thank you for loving me just as I am. Thank you for accepting me and welcoming me with open arms. Today I surrender my life into your hands that I would be in Christ. I accept your forgiveness of my past. I commit to live for your purposes. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you all the days of my life and to show your love to the world around me. In Jesus' name. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 